Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 37. Today we will be reading Book 10, chapters 6 through 9 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So as we made mention in the bonus introductory episode for Book 10, St. Augustine is going to progress through a kind of philosophical self-examination. Uh, so he's going to go from what is lower to what is higher in search of the God who is, you know, to be found therein, or perhaps not. And as he kind of mounts in his quest for the knowledge of God, he'll go from the world to the body and to the soul. And it's clear in these descriptions that he's very good at dialectic or the art of argumentation or the craft of argumentation, because he's going to, you know, he's going to make sure that he covers all his bases. He's going to make sure that he exhausts all of his options. So as you, the reader, listen on, you're like, okay, I might not have been so thorough. <laughs> we do so with the kind of sympathy that St. Augustine is about this business in the search of God. And so he's going to leave no stone unturned. He's going to leave no option unexercised. So in that spirit, let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 6 Thus, not with doubt, but with sure awareness do I love you, Lord. You have stricken my heart with your word, and I have loved you. Yes, also, behold, heaven, earth, and all therein on every side bid me to love you. Nor do they cease to say this to all, so that they might be without excuse. But more profoundly will you have mercy on those on whom you will have mercy, and compassion on those for whom you have compassion, lest heaven and earth were to speak your praises to deaf ears. But what do I love when I love you? Not the beauty of bodies, nor the fair harmony of time, nor the brightness of the light which is so dear to our eyes, nor the sweet melodies of various songs, nor the fragrant smell of flowers, oils, and spices, nor manna and honey, nor limbs ready to embrace us. None of these are what I love when I love my God, and yet I love a kind of light, melody, fragrance, sustenance, and embracing of my inner man, where there shines upon my soul something that space cannot contain, and where there resounds a tone that time does not carry away, where a fragrance remains without being dispersed by any breath, and where an embrace is found that is never cut short by satiety. This is what I love when I love my God. And what is this? I asked the earth, and it answered me, I am not he. And all that was upon it answered me the same way. I asked the sea and the depths and all creeping living things, and they answered, We are not your God. Seek above us. I asked the stirring air, and all of it, with all its inhabitants, answered, Anaximenes was deceived. I am not God. 
I turned to the heavens, sun, moon, and stars, and they too responded, Nor are we the God whom you seek. And I replied to all the things that encompass the door of my flesh. You have told me that you are not God. Tell me something about him. And they cried out with a loud voice, He made us. I questioned them, thinking about them, and their splendor gave the answer. And I turned to myself and asked, Who are you? I answered, A man. And behold, within me there was present to me my soul and my body, one internal and the other outside. By which of these should I seek my God? I had sought him in the body from earth to heaven as far as I could send messengers, the very light of my eyes. But it is better to seek by the inner means, for it was like a presiding judge before the bodily messengers that reported to it the answers received from heaven, earth, and all therein, all who said, We are not God, but he made us. All these things did my inner man know by the ministry of the outer. I, the inner, knew them. I, the mind, through my bodily senses. I asked this immense world about my God, and it answered me, I am not he, but he made me. Is not this bodily splendor apparent to all who have intact senses? Why then does it not say the same thing to all? Animals, both small and great, see it, but cannot ask it this, for they have no reasoning set over their senses to judge the reports that they bring forth. But men can ask it, so that the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood through the things that have been made. However, when men love them, they become subject to them, and subjects cannot judge. And creatures only speak this answer to those who can judge. They do not change their voice, that is the appearance of their splendor, if one man only sees and another seeing also asks, thus appearing one way to the first and differently to the second. Rather, appearing the same to both, their voice is silent to the first and speaks to the second. In fact, it speaks to all, but the only ones who understand are those who compare its voice received from outside with the truth that is within. For truth says unto me, neither heaven nor earth nor any other body is your God. Their very nature says this, do you not see they are a bodily mass which is less in its parts than in its whole. Now I speak to you, O my soul, to you who are my better part, for you enliven the mass of my body, giving it life, which no body can give to a body, but your God is even the very life of your life. Chapter 7. What then do I love when I love my God? Who is he who is above the head of my soul? By my very soul I will ascend to him. I will pass beyond that power of mine by which I am united to my body, and I fill its whole frame with life. Nor can I, by means of that power, find my God. For if I could, then horse and mule, which have no understanding, might find him. For their bodies live by that same power. But there is another power, not only that by which I animate my body, but that by which I fill my flesh, which the Lord has framed for me, with the power to sense, directing the eye so it does not hear, and the ear so it does not see, but rather commanding the eye that I should see through it, and the ear that I should hear through it, and the other senses too, that they should have their own particular organs and offices to fill, all of which, in all of their diversity, I, the unified mind, bring about through my activity." I will pass beyond this power of mine as well, for horse and mule also have these senses, for they too perceive through the body. Chapter 8. Therefore I will pass beyond this power of my nature as well, rising up step by step to him who made me. And I come now to the spacious fields and palaces of my memory, where the treasures of countless images are stored, brought into it by all kinds of things that are perceived by the senses. They too are stored whatever we happen to think about, whether by making things larger or smaller, or altering in any other way the things that have come to us through our senses. So too, whatever else has been committed to memory and laid up is stored there, so long as forgetfulness has not swallowed it up and buried it. When I enter there, I request what I choose to be brought forth. 
Some come instantly, whereas others must be sought after for a long time, being brought, as it were, out of some inner place. Others rush out in hosts, and although one thing is desired and requested, they all come forth as though to say, Perhaps I am what you are looking for. With the hand of my heart, I drive these away from before the gaze of my remembrance, until what I am looking for is unveiled and appears in sight, coming forth from its secret place. Other things come readily in uninterrupted order, just as they are called for, those in the front making way for those that come after them, and as they make their way, they pass back away out of sight, ready to come forth again at will, all of which takes place when I repeat something by heart. Everything there is preserved separately and under general headings, each having entered by its own particular avenue. Through the eyes comes light, all colors and bodily forms, through the ears all sorts of sounds, by way of the nostrils all smells, by the mouth all tastes, and by the physical sensation of the whole body, whatever is hard or soft, hot or cold, smooth or rugged, heavy or light, whether inside or outside the body. All of these are received within the immense recesses of memory, in her countless secret and inexpressible windings, to be reflected on and brought forth as needed, each entering by its own gate and finding there a place to be stored. Yet it is not the things themselves that enter therein, but only the images of the things that are perceived, now ready there for thought to recall them. Who can tell how these images are formed, even though it is quite clear what sense they each come from for storage therein? For even while I dwell in darkness and silence, I can produce colors in my memory whenever I choose, distinguishing there between black and white and whatever others that I might will. Nor do sounds break in and disturb the image sketched before my eyes, which I am now reviewing, though they too are there, lying dormant and laid up, as it were, in their own place apart. For these too can be called forth, and they will immediately appear. For though my tongue is still and my throat is silent, nonetheless I can sing as much as I wish. Nor do those images of colors which nonetheless are there intrude and interrupt when another store, which had flowed in by the ears, is called forth. So too I can recall at my pleasure all the other things, piled in and piled high by the other senses. Yes, I distinguish the smell of lilies from violets without smelling a thing, and I can prefer honey to sweet wine, smooth feelings over rugged ones, all the while neither tasting nor handling a thing, but only holding all this in memory. All this I perform within myself in the vast halls of my memory. For within me, heaven, earth, sea, and whatever I might think about there are all present within me, in addition to what I have forgotten. And there too I also meet myself, in memory recalling myself, as well as when, where, and what I have done, along with how I felt at the time. There is found all that I remember, either through my own experience or on the word of others. From the same storehouse, I myself continuously combine with the past various likenesses of things that I have experienced or have believed from my experience, and from this I infer future actions, events, and hopes, reflecting again on all this in the present. I will do this or that, I say to myself, in that great storehouse of my mind, filled with the images of so many and such great things, telling myself, and this or that will follow. Oh, may this or that come to pass. May God prevent this or that from happening. And when I speak such things to myself, the images of all that I am speaking about are present to me, coming forth from that same treasure of memory, and I would not speak of any of them if there were no images of them. Great is this power of memory, all too great, O oh my God. How large and boundless a chamber it is! Who has ever sounded it down to its depths? Yet this is a power of mine and belongs to my nature, nor do I myself comprehend all that I am. Therefore is the soul too narrow to contain itself? And where would be that part of itself that it cannot contain? Is it outside of it, not within? But how then does it not comprehend itself? 
A wonderful admiration surprises me and amazement grasps me. Men go abroad to admire the heights of the mountains, the mighty billowing waves of the sea, the broad tides of the rivers, the great expanses of the oceans, and the revolution of the stars. Yet all the while, they pass right by themselves. Nor do they marvel that when I spoke about all these things, I did not see them with my eyes, though I could not have spoken about them unless I at the same time saw the mountains, billowing seas, rivers, and stars that I had once seen, as well as that ocean that I believe exists, all inwardly in my memory, all with the same sort of vast dimensions as though I saw them abroad outside myself. However, by seeing them, did I not draw them into myself when my eyes beheld them? However, they are not themselves with me, but only their images. And I know the bodily senses by which each of them was impressed upon me. Chapter 9 But this is not all that is retained within the immeasurable capacity of my memory. Here, too, is all that I have learned concerning the liberal arts, and have not yet forgotten, back in some inner place which, however, is no place, nor are they images of them, but are the very things themselves. For what literature is, as well as the art of disputing, and the lists of the types of questions that can be asked, along with any of these sorts of things that I know, all exist in my memory in a way different from what I hold in my memory from the senses, not like the image that remains while the thing passes away, nor like a voice that sounds forth and then passes away only to be recalled by the impression it leaves behind, heard as though it were sounding, when no sound exists any longer, nor like a smell which passes by in the air, affecting the sense of smell, from which it then conveys an image of itself into the memory, enabling us to recall this smell when we remember it, nor like food, which indeed even now in the stomach has no taste, though it still in a way has a taste in the memory, nor as anything that the body perceives by way of touch, which upon removal is still conceived by memory. For those things are not conveyed into memory, only their images, with an admirable swiftness, are caught up and stored there, as it were, in wondrous storehouses, and marvelously brought forth from there by the act of remembering. All right, I thought maybe a, a good scriptural passage or good scriptural text with which to begin would be Romans one twenty, which uh, St. Augustine cites a couple of times in these chapters, which is, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And so, you know, St. Paul will go on to say, and so you're without excuse, you pagans who do not acknowledge him present before you in creation. And this, this verse will often come up in like the philosophical and theological tradition of the church when people are trying to prove things like God exists, all right? So there's this sense that when we inquire into creation, all right, we're going to find God, not like God is part of creation or mixed up amidst creation, but that God is the creator. Okay, so so he's present to creation as giving it being, as, as giving it a kind of agency, and all of creation is transparent to his gaze. So here we're going to start with, you know, created things in the world around, and uh, St. Augustine is going to ask all different sorts of, you know, like rocks and trees and animals, whether God is to be found there, and they're all going to respond, <laughs> no, but he may, like, are you God? He's going to ask them, they're going to say, no, we're not. I'm like, you know, a catfish, or I'm like a Venus flytrap. Uh, he doesn't actually inquire with those particular things, but you can imagine. Uh, and they each respond, no, we're not God, but but he made us. So look up, look further, look beyond, and you will be rewarded for your search. So Father Jacob Burcham, we sometimes talk about, you know, the beauty of creation or the beauty of our human experience as a way by which to refer us to God. How do these, these texts from St. Augustine help us in that effort? Well, at first reading, I don't know if they helped me in the effort, uh, because <laughs> as you said, he goes on in depth. So we kind of have to bear with St. Augustine's exhaustive dialectic nature. But 
there's a fullness and a beauty to it all the same as you sort of uh, what stew and it stew in it is usually has that what that's usually a negative connotation right to stew um as we kind of marinate in it how about that yeah that's a little bit better Delicious. there we go i guess a word that that pops into my mind is you know when saint augustine is is looking through all of creation to see if if that is god and all of creation the the, the created world says nope keep looking not that they have nothing to say about God, they do as they are the creation of the creator. Um, but this word of vestige, right? This is kind of like the classic word that's used for how God is in the world, right? We're not polytheists. God isn't in the tree. And it doesn't matter what we are. God's not polytheistic in the sense that he's in things. But there are vestiges or sort of footprints of God, of the creator in the created world. And I, I remember talking about this at some point earlier in this season about how I think when we were talking about baptism and, and using the sort of simplicity of the sacraments and um, the accessibility of the scriptures and their simplicity, when we talked about um, St. Augustine reading Cicero and comparing it to the scriptures, that God wants to be known. He wants to reveal himself, and he does so not just in sort of spiritual ways, but even in the physical creation of the world. So even though Augustine is looking in, what did you say, catfish and Venus flytraps, which he doesn't record, but you know, if he was asking a catfish and a Venus flytrap if they're God, there are even we could see as they direct him to God, the, the physical world, the created world, the beauty of it is that it, it shows us the grandeur and beauty of God if, we, if we're if we kind of searching. So we can kind of start there because it's immediate, but it leads us up to what is higher and less readily immediate, but it still points us in a direction if if we're looking. Yeah. And I suppose it's in part for this reason that this kind of poetry here of his question and answer session with all of creation, uh, it's sometimes excerpted and included in the back of the breviary among religious poetry that you might use there for for your meditation it's like appendix four never has a section of the breviary been more nobly named than appendix four um so yeah if there's a particular passage that you're hoping to retain from the confessions and maybe make a bookmark out of you might consider this one there's also a prayer coming in short order about God calling and shouting that you I also consider uh, but but yeah a very beautiful passage indeed Okay, so St. Augustine says, Alas, I am defeated. The world will not furnish me with the knowledge of God, at least as straightforwardly as I had hoped. Um, so then where do I turn next? And he's going to turn to the body. And when we think about the body, you might just think about like matter or the stuffitude of your human life. But but he's going to talk especially about the senses. So it's, it's fascinating what he's doing here. He's basically, he's kind of sifting through all of the ways that we engage with reality. Okay, so you can think about us as like one big open wound of engagement. Like we're, we're looking to have relationships with all kinds of things in creation. We're like, oh my gosh, we could have a relationship with rocks. Like I could throw rocks. I could draw in chalk a target on a barn and throw rocks for somewhere between seven and 18 hours. Like that's incredible. Okay, but there are more elevated ways to carry out our human lives. Um, and so we can sense things and we can form sense impressions and we might project those sense impressions by by artistry or by wild description in literature, whatever it is, right? So he's gonna go up the ranks of the way that we as human beings engage with reality. And obviously when you get to the height of that, we're talking about you know knowledge and love, uh, whereby we are most made to the image and likeness of God. So as he, as he rises through the senses, he's going to arrive at sense memory and just, just muse over it. And I think one of the things we can take away from this is the depth for, you know, for one, the depth of his insight into our human experience, but also the wonder 
uh, that is evinced in these types of descriptions. I personally have never thought about my sense memory with such evocative prose. Uh, but it's cool that, that St. Augustine kind of gives us a new insight into our own humanity. It's like the artist, the artist who's able to kind of transpose your human experience into a different register and then kind of offer it back to you for its renewal, for its refreshment. Um, so I don't know if in these, these passages here where he's describing sense impressions and sense memory, if you have particular takeaways or particular things that you retained. Perhaps a, a good thing to remember to to realize about who we are as human beings and our human nature is that, you know, just as we sort of ascend with St. Augustine from the physical created world higher up as, you know, as we're moving up the sort of hierarchy of creation, um, there is a way by which, you know, our human nature also comes to know things. It's not really a hierarchy, but we begin by, as Father Gregory would say, by an encounter and, and by encountering something with our, our five senses that we all know. And, and then because we are rational and, um, you know, we are, we're able to, well, not just because we're rational, but we're able to sense that and have this memory idea of it. And because we're rational to think about it, and as Father Gregory was saying, we can recount it in prose or in speech or in thought or whatever it might be. But we begin by like this sensing and, and kind of knowing what a thing is. And it's really basic. Um, but again, it goes back to this theme that God wants us to know him in immediate and accessible ways. So he he does so through his creation and he also does through through his incarnation, you know, becoming man just before us. So um, there's a very kind of, as St. Augustine spends this time going through his his sense memory, the idea of knowing something, the idea of not knowing something, of coming to understand. There's also this this sort of relation to how it is that we function as as human beings and coming to know and, and coming to have ideas and knowledge of things. So it's not it's not just a sort of abstract kind of venture into part of his mind, but a sort of what explanation in a new way or a different way of of our ability to know and, and to love of using our of what it means to be human in us yeah and i think i think that's a good point too like saint augustine thinks it's worthwhile to describe the whole process whereby we as human beings come to know or come to like kind of derive something from our experience in the way of solid knowledge or real wisdom and so maybe just to paint it in, in broad brushstrokes or give a thumbnail sketch he basically thinks that you know you have your senses and your senses receive certain things, and, and he goes through these in exacting detail. So they each have the things that they're specifically trained on, and then they don't really consider other things, just, just those things that they're specifically trained on. And then when you take your senses together, they kind of coordinate that experience, and they, they furnish you with an image, and you, you hear him in these pages describe the difference between images and realities quite a bit. So he's saying what we have in the sense memory is an image, it's not the thing itself. So like, how do we, how do we have access to the thing itself? Mind you, he's not tortured by problems of subsequent philosophers in like the 17th and 18th century who are like, ah, I don't know if I can actually get to the thing itself. He's like, no, we, we definitely have access to the thing itself, but how does that thing itself come to live in us? And so after we've kind of passed through this initial stage, as it were, of sensing, then it's the mind, which has a share in the divine light itself, which is able to draw forth from our sense experience something intelligible, right? So kind of leave behind all the material components, all of the embodied elements, and then just extract the heart of the matter. And in extracting the heart of the matter, that gives us the tools to re-engage with reality and then sift our experience. So that way we can make judgments and we can reason upon them. So that's like the basic shape of the thing. And you might be thinking, this is more involved than I'd hoped for a Catholic classic. I was thinking Introduction to the Devout Life Part 2. 
Fear not, okay? We're going to pass through these meditations with St. Augustine, and even if they challenge us, even if we find them difficult to comprehend, still, they're going to afford us a greater capacity to engage with our own experience so that we can be better, um, you know, like made to the image and likeness of God, or so that we can be better in, you know, kind of posing our questions to the Lord and receiving the answers that he tenders in turn. So, Father Jacob Bertrand, any final thoughts or final encouragements? Yeah, I think the whole purpose here is is to be, as you were just saying, is to be a better knower and a better lover. And we do that when we when we stretch ourselves. So, yeah, it's good. Let, like let Augustine take us by the hand, and we can sort of scoop up what what we can scoop up. And you know, if we have to return to the confessions to scoop up more at another point, then we'll do that. But for now, we're, we're getting a good bit. So it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose, but the, we'll swallow some of it. It'll be it'll be great. That's right. Yep. And sometimes it's good just to keep coming back to the fire hose. Even though it might seem abrasive for your face and mouth, yet still your thirst is sated, at least temporarily, until such time as it's sated perfectly in heaven. That's where we're headed. Great. So next episode, we're going to move on to intellectual memory. So if you thought that this was difficult, (laughs) just kidding. It'll be great. We'll do it together. All right. No of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. 